Housing in Australian cities, is it affordable? Treasury Secretary John Fraser believes that Sydney and some parts of Melbourne are unequivocally in a housing bubble. Both cities are among the most expensive in the world. The Federal Treasurer Joe Hockey disagrees, saying that with the access to credit that is afforded by a good job, housing is still readily affordable. For low-income earners, though, that might not be reassuring. Last year, the Council to Homeless Persons released a report that found that less than 1% of one-bedroom homes in Melbourne are affordable to a person on unemployment benefits. It's a situation that's not restricted to the centre. In Greater Dandenong, a decade ago, around 25% of one-bedroom homes were affordable. Now it's three. And Frankston has dropped from 50 to 10 in the same period. And though housing pressure is most acute for low-income earners, they certainly aren't the only ones feeling it. The median house price increased by 260% between 2000 and 2011, while the median household income only increased by 150%. On the other side of that, though, few would dispute that there has been a significant increase in construction in Melbourne's city centre, especially in the same period. So why does the situation appear to be getting worse for low- and middle-income earners? This is all being equal from the Melbourne Social Equity Institute and the University of Melbourne. I'm Gary Dixon, and my guests today are engaged in research on this very issue. From the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning, Professor Carolyn Weitzman and Alexander Sheko. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Gary. So the Treasurer's comments have been pretty widely discussed this week, but he also said that housing affordability is fundamentally an issue of supply failing to meet demand. What's your uh, reflection on that comment? Well, Gary, I think that to some extent it, it has some validity. The population of Australia is growing quite rapidly. The population of Melbourne is growing quite rapidly. We're going to need at least a million new houses by 2030. So um, we need to start thinking about, when I, even when I use the word houses, what those dwellings are going to look like, how what the impact is going to be environmentally and economically as well as socially. And part of the problem is that the last few years have been all about supply-side economics, have been all about let's build as much housing as quickly as possible, leaving behind transportation infrastructure, leaving behind schools in the neighbourhood, all of those things that we know are necessary for healthy lives, for live-work balance. And unfortunately, it hasn't worked. Uh, Yes, lots of new houses have been built. They're less and less affordable. Uh, Planning controls have uh, uh, decreased during that time. There was supposed to be an urban growth boundary. That went by the wayside in the last decade in Victoria. And still, housing prices have climbed. So that approach has been tried for the last 10 to 15 years. It hasn't worked. As, as you mentioned, a lot of the, the, the dwellings that have been built have been uh, of a very particular kind, especially in the city of Melbourne. You're seeing uh, a large majority of, of new dwellings are apartments and uh, the majority of those studio or one bedroom. So it's a very particular type of household that uh, is being catered for in that space. It's almost purely a duopoly. So in the central city, you see a lot of small apartments, sometimes quite poorly designed, not terribly affordable. And then in the uh, outer suburbs, what's being built 
is um, supposedly affordable. It actually isn't affordable housing, let alone affordable living once you factor in transport costs. Um, three and four bedroom family, supposedly family type uh, detached dwellings still predominantly. There's a few townhouses, but that leaves out a huge part of the city, uh, middle suburbs and inner suburbs that are near public transport, um, uh, outer suburbs that can be developed at higher densities, including some apartment buildings, again, hopefully near public transport. Um, So when you look at the examples of almost any other city, particularly developed cities that are growing as rapidly or more rapidly than Melbourne, places like Seattle or places like Portland, um, you see a much more uh, fully worked out range or continuum of housing choices that are being offered to people, and people don't come just in two varieties. So I suppose there's a there's a question then about, um, I mean, how, how we break this duopoly and, um, and whether there are particular uh, sites within Melbourne, particular places that would be sort of prime candidates for some more social housing with, uh, with better infrastructure and better services. There's probably um, some opportunity to utilise government-owned um, land holdings, um, both local government and state government. So we've, we've seen that in practice uh, with regard to local government land. Um, there's been some examples in, in Port Phillip where uh, council-owned car parks have been developed over, so the car park's been retained. Um, and the, a social housing development has been built above it, so it's retaining a public asset while leveraging the, uh, the value of that land uh, to help uh, pay, pay for the, the development. So that's something that a number of councils are looking at. I know at least Moreland and Darabin are trying to learn from that at the moment. Uh, there's also opportunities to leverage significant state uh, land holdings, uh, particularly that of Victrac. Uh, which owns all the railway lands. There's surplus land around railways, which also has the, the opportunity to be uh, integrated with public transport. Uh, we can see that in the uh, Housing Choices Australia um, development in Pasco Vale, which was built on private land, not Victrac land, but next to Pasco Vale Station. So going back to what Carolyn said earlier about cost of living and uh, generating positive social outcomes, that, that's a great opportunity there. We should also be considering including... Uh, social housing, public housing in, in and amongst uh, new private development as well. That's, I know, that uh, New York is... is, is uh... Oh, it's not just New York. Uh, 48 of the 50 states in the U.S. have some form of inclusionary zoning, as do most countries in Europe, as do several states in Australia, but not Victoria. So the idea of inclusionary zoning, or inclusionary zone housing as it's sometimes called, is that you don't want 100% social housing or public housing, but it's also problematic to have 100% um, uh, housing for wealthy folks that you want a social mix in communities and particularly in communities that are well served, public transport, for public schools, etc. You want the opportunity for a range of people to live there. One thing that um, people sometimes forget is that you have naturally a little bit of um, different wealth over the life course. So 
as young people uh, go to uh, tertiary education or not, they get their first jobs, they're forming their first households. Very few of those households, unless they're the child of cabinet ministers, have access to uh, an, uh, a house. Um, similarly, as you get older, the uh, household that's most likely to be low income is a older single woman, a widow or a divorcee. And it's really important not just to look at poor people as people out there uh, who may not be deserving or something like that, but to realize that at every stage of almost every person's life, there's going to be um, uh, variations in income, variations in, in physical abilities for that matter, uh, that need to be catered to by a diversity of housing. And uh, there's another equity issue that sort of comes up in what you in what you're talking about and uh, and that is when uh, access to finances can change quite suddenly as a result of uh, let's say uh, family violence. Yeah. So as you know, Gary, I, I come out of research on violence against women. And um, a number of years ago, I was doing research with uh, women who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. 100% of them were survivors of violence. Um, violence is a contributor to homelessness is a is a huge issue and one that's starting to be recognized, I think, in, in Melbourne and in Australia. Um, so it's really important uh, for women, for young people, um, sometimes for older people to get out of uh, violent and abusive situations to be able to um, find secure housing. If I can just, um, with regard to inclusion rezoning, um, there's also an opportunity there um, to use it as a value capture mechanism. So that's essentially where um, land has increased um, in value, not through any improvement by the landowner. So sometimes this occurs because of infrastructure provision. So if a government will build a railroad, then the land around that will uh, go up in value. Another way that land can go up in value is through Rezoning. So we look at Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne, which is the largest urban renewal project in the city's history, um, 250 hectares or, or thereabouts, previously zoned uh, for industrial land, very low value. Overnight, when it gets rezoned to Capital City, um, you know, the land goes up by a, a multiple of, I, I don't know how much, but it's, it's a very large amount. So if you're a lucky landowner, or you're probably not a lucky landowner, you're probably a, a very savvy business person that's bought up large land holdings uh, in anticipation of this fact, you've suddenly gained a windfall um, of, of, of profit through no real, you haven't really earned it. So the idea of value capture is that in situations like that, you can be asked to pay your share, you still make a, a sizable profit. But uh, say, for example, the strategic work is put in ahead of time so that some of that is captured and rather than going to a very small proportion of very rich and savvy people, uh, it can be used um, to, to help finance uh, affordable housing development and um, other, other social goods such as open space, community facilities and the like. So to compare Melbourne with another metropolitan area, that of Portland, uh, Portland has a, uh, a system called tax increment financing. It identifies areas such as Fisherman's Bend that are going to be going through urban renewal. Uh, it's uh, um, close to a bunch of residential areas. A lot of the industrial uses are moving out. It's an obvious place that 10 to 15 years down the track will uh, have uh, pressure to build 
residential units and residential land is owned at a higher value than industrial land. And besides, uh, when you're talking about an area that size, you're starting to talk about public transport improvements and perhaps bringing in schools, aquatic centers, et cetera, et cetera. What the city of Portland does is um, uh, set a baseline property tax rate and then any increase above that, a certain proportion of it goes towards affordable housing. Uh, and that makes sense instead of uh, waiting until you've brought in improvements or you've rezoned the land and then trying to scramble to get a little bit of land or a little bit of um, uh, value in order to build affordable housing. Affordable housing is essential infrastructure just the same as a new tram line and you need to plan for that properly and there are jurisdictions that plan for it properly and then there's jurisdictions that aren't planning for it properly and unfortunately Melbourne is in that latter category. So uh, one of the things that's come out of the research and I'm sure Carolyn would agree with me is the need for integrated policy so um, I might be skipping ahead a bit because we'll talk about the, the summit that we've had a bit later um, but one of the main issues that came out of that and um, one of the promising directions for the project is contributing to, to some sense of integrated policy so we've recently had under the previous government, a Metropolitan Planning Strategy Plan Melbourne released. Um, the, the the section on housing affordability is sort of largely on supply side uh, economics, as Carolyn has said. Um, that's being partially revisited by the new government. So uh, we're, we're hoping that uh, the kinds of outcomes that we've had will uh, contribute to that because in terms of things like um, housing targets in terms of supply, diversity, affordability, um, and thinking ahead to a 10-year fra- time frame, a 30-year time frame, that's the kind of thing you need. Otherwise, you're, you're sort of left um, sort of really dealing with things in an ad hoc situation. Um, Fisherman's Bend is a prime example of that uh, in terms of the lost opportunity to, to capture value there. But there's a number of instances where you can see that failing to plan ahead uh, leads to a bad outcome. This is one of them. And, and maybe sometimes planning... Uh, too much to plan ahead. I mean, I know that uh, affordable housing has certainly been an issue that has been recognised by local and state governments for as long as local and state governments seem to have been producing 30-year plans, Mm -hmm. but we just have so many new 30-year plans that perhaps nothing is... Uh, is, well, that's is certainly a bugbear of mine, uh, Gary, as you probably know. Uh, Melbourne has had five... 30 to 40 year strategies in the last five decades, which uh, every time a state government changes the, uh, not just the the, um, metropolitan strategy changes, but it appears that uh, every bit of infrastructure funding, every bit of long-term transportation planning appears to change. That's not the way that cities that do it well do it. So in Vancouver, to give uh, an example, there have been remarkable swings at both the local government level and at the state or provincial government level, but they've stayed with the same strategy over that time. And I think one of the key determinants there is that there is a real metropolitan government. All of the local governments voluntarily get together and do a metropolitan strategy. And what that means is you can have a particular swing in one local government, but won't be across all of the local governments, and the election times are different from local and state governments. So that metropolitan strategy is a little bit more inured to the shocks that happen when governments change. So when Sasha's talking about integrated policy or when the Transforming Housing Project talks about integrated strategy, sorry, Alexander, uh, talks about integrated strategy, 
it's integrated strategy in two ways. One of it is what we'd call horizontal integration, where you're bringing treasury and finance together with planning, together with uh, housing and human services, just to give those three examples, to be working together on affordable housing because there's not much you can do without the money for it, basically. So that's where you need to bring in treasury and finance. But there's also what you'd call horizontal integration, which is what local governments are doing needs to be worked out with one another across the metropolitan level, but also worked out, hopefully, with state and commonwealth strategy as well. So if you have all those ducks in a row, and the only way that you can do that is through a partnership, then you uh, start getting the kind of um, long-term policies that can only come out of a relatively deliberative model. And what that really then leads to is policy certainty, which... Um, Developers really love... Takes takes a lot of the risk out of it. So um, in, in the research that I've been doing on the project, I've been talking to investors and community um, housing organisations largely, and risk risk of all kinds is one of the main barriers that drives costs up. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different risks. There's sales risk, design risk, um, planning risk, things like that. But um, having to deal with an uncertain policy environment, and if you're a developer and you've got these projects and timelines and you're trying to figure out how much profit you're going to make and you, you you know you've got to be real um these companies exist to make profit and that's not a bad thing that's that's how everyone makes a living but uh they need to be able to be, be sure what's going to happen in x years time and if if it's a if it's a highly volatile environment then risk goes up and costs go up so um in terms of working together with the private sector which ultimately does deliver 95 percent of the housing stock in australia um, anything that provides certainty over a long period of time helps take the risk out of it and helps take some of the cost out of it. And before I may have sounded a little bit flippant when I said which developers love, but as Alexander just said, that financial element of risk is huge. It means it's harder to get loans from banks or super funds, wherever you're getting the money from. It means there's a greater emphasis on pre-selling off the plan, etc. And all of that drives up costs. So when you talk to the Urban Development Institute in, in Vancouver, they aren't arguing anymore about a growth boundary. They've had a growth boundary for 40 years. They aren't arguing anymore about inclusionary zoning, both inclusionary zoning, which would be considered a little bit of a stick and density bonusing, which would be considered a bit of a carrot approach to affordable housing. Both of those have been in place for uh, years. What they're arguing about is that they'd like a little bit more certainty when it comes to density bonusing because um, more and more of the money that is uh, coming not just um, through density bonusing but through development contribution plans is going to affordable housing and they'd like to know where and why it's going to certain amounts of money, which is perfectly natural. But the reason why the city of Vancouver is taking that approach is because money has been clawed back from the federal level in Canada, just like money has been clawed back from the Commonwealth level in Australia. But the bottom line is um, the city of Vancouver is able to enable much more affordable housing than a place like Melbourne is. And developers don't hate it. In fact, in many cases, they love it because it creates opportunities for them to develop affordable housing, which there is always a demand for and which helps with the cycles of demand and supply that are often there in wealthier housing. So it's a win-win situation. 
And I suppose uh, some level of certainty about, as you were saying, mitigating some of that risk around uncertain policy environments um, could help to start to address some of the quality issues that we have uh, here in Australia as well. Quite often the standard is higher for, let's say, community housing than it is for the private market. This is just an anecdote, but a couple of years ago I was at a Open House Melbourne visiting Common Ground, which is housing for homeless people on Elizabeth Street, and I visited a unnamed uh, development on Chapel Street at the same time, which was new, two uh, sets of one-bedroom apartments the common ground apartments were so much better designed than the apartments on Chapel Street, even though the apartments on Chapel Street, one bedroom is going for $550,000. Why is that? I think there's two things. One is that there's a stronger degree of regulation when it comes to social housing um, and a greater understanding that um, lower income people quite often spend more of their time in their homes. And so it needs to be as well designed as possible. Uh, but I also think that, um, again, there's a certain level of certainty which allows you to um, build in a more imaginative, perhaps, or a more thoughtful way to the needs of the clients than there might be in the private sector. So I actually think a healthy, affordable housing uh, sector would have a tremendous um, uh, positive spillover effect on the quality of design. I'm thinking again of an example from Portland where a private developer delivered some family housing and he recognized the fact that there wasn't a school nearby and he approached himself, he approached the school board and said, would you be interested in us converting the ground floor of this development to a school? And the school board said, oh, that's great. We've been looking around for a site. And he did that of his own resolve because he knew that the people living there wouldn't have cars, would want their kids to be going to the local school. He saw it as part of the package. Um, it gave a um, stable tenant to the ground floor. So that kind of imagination, that kind of innovation can occur within an affordable housing um, industry. Another, another factor in that is that the community housing organisations that manage social housing um, are essentially long-term managers of housing. What we see in, uh, in Australia, where uh, I think we were talking earlier, and uh, the figures were something like in a central city, 80% of new dwellings, uh, new apartments generally, um, are owned by investors and rented out, and 20% are owner-occupiers. Um, what really you have then is a developer that, um, especially due to the way that their cash flow and their, their cycles work, you build it and you get rid of it as soon as possible so you can take your money and move on to the next project. So you, you're interested in selling and you're selling to investors and investors are in for capital gains. They're not there uh, and they're not really thinking about the needs of the tenants. Obviously, someone has to want to live there, but they're not really thinking long term in that way except to get capital gains. Uh, on the other hand, these community housing organisations are either partnering with developers, so ideally they're involved from the very start, consulting on the, the design of of it all, or in some cases, um, and both housing associations and the smaller housing providers are doing this, um, developing their own properties, um, especially under the during the nation building program of the previous federal government. Uh, there was a, quite a bit of money available to do that, and the sector grew quite rapidly. So they're holding on to these properties for 
20 years or more. Uh, and their mission is, uh, as non-profits is, is a social one. So they're interested both in the needs of their tenants and in managing this uh, property long-term rather than selling it off. So as a result, they've got much more of an eye for, for quality because they know they need to, say, pay for the uh, air conditioning bill. So they're interesting in, interested in something that's energy efficient. So in that respect as well, I think scaling up that sector would mean... Um, housing being either commissioned or developed by people that have a long-term interest in it rather than selling it off or trying to get capital gains out of it. So uh, we're obviously talking about a, a very complex space here then that, that's going to require, um, uh, let's say, new or more stable policy mechanisms, but it requires the input of, of investors, developers, planners, social housing uh, providers, a whole a whole range of people. Um, and, and leading back to this, the summit that, uh, that that was held here at the university last month, the uh, Transforming Housing Summit, uh, where a lot of these key stakeholders were brought together um, and brought together to specifically discuss um, how to provide more affordable housing for Melbourne. Yeah, it was a really fun conference to organise and then to see happen because um, we were adamant that it had to be an anti-conference in a way. We brought in a facilitator who... Uh, was given the task of moving people towards concrete commitments. Although we had three excellent guest speakers, one from Sydney, two international, they were, uh, it was understood that they would speak for about a half hour each and just to kind of give people examples from other places. But the vast majority of that day and a half summit was people talking together, people who hadn't necessarily talked together before. So we uh, tried really hard to get an even balance of folks from state government, from local government, from private development, from social housing, and then investors, both philanthropic and private investors. And um, and we did. We got a, an even balance of all of those groups, about 60 people all told. And many of them had never talked to one another. I think some of them had talked to state government against what other people had said, but they hadn't actually been asked to um, talk uh, with one another about what um, the best mechanisms would be. Uh, so that's what we mean when we're talking about deliberative planning. We don't mean, and I said this at the beginning of the summit, everybody linking arms, agreeing completely and singing kumbaya. Um, that's not what consensus building is about to me or indeed to some of the people who talk about um, deliberative planning. Instead, it means what's the solution that all of you can deal with given that all of you say that you care about affordable housing. And it's not just say. I mean, everyone I've spoken to to this project, this project wouldn't have funding from the development industry, uh, from state government, um, from investors if they didn't deeply understand that there's a big problem out there and that there was something that they wanted to do about it. By uh, investing in this research project, they're showing the willingness to talk together and we're there as a kind of neutral organization, the university, to bring those groups together. I actually went into this affordable housing research project without hugely strong opinions on the particular policy mechanisms or finance mechanisms or design mechanisms that would be necessary to scale up 
the quantity and quality of affordable housing. I just knew from my previous work that uh, one good way to get that happening is to get people to talk together. And indeed, at the end of the day, we didn't do a formal evaluation, but we did have a little bit of a, um, uh, again, the facilitator led, how much can you live with what we've been talking about exercise. And a quite diverse range of people expressed a lot of satisfaction and, in fact, surprise that um, there were a lot of things that they could agree on and also felt, I think, that um, people understood other people's perspective a little bit better than before. So it was a big win in that way. I mean, on that on that last point, understanding other people's perspectives, obviously there were quite a few things that we all could agree on. There were a few things, very unsurprisingly, that we didn't agree on, but still the fact that those conversations were had, and as Carolyn said, some of those conversations, some of those actors were having that conversation for the first time. So I think perhaps the most contentious idea that we were discussing was one of inclusionary zoning, which is uh, sort of quite popular amongst the community housing organisations, maybe uh, state gov- uh, local government, not so sure about state government because they're the ones that have to wear the flag if they introduce it, but something that is resisted by the development industry, at least here. But um, the benefit of that conversation was that uh, people were able to understand each other's viewpoints. So um, I think that there would be some people perhaps from local government or community housing organisations that see the value of this idea in principle but haven't quite thought out how it might work out and we've got you know developers there articulating why they think it doesn't work and really to if you're advocating for it you need to understand the development economics and the impact that that would have so even if we weren't able to even if not everyone's agreeing I think people are seeing each other's side of the story and that's actually a really positive outcome but as Carolyn said there was a lot of consensus so one of one of the things that I did after the summit um, was type up all of all of the notes that had been taken and we had uh, 10 ideas that we had discussed over three sessions and those ideas are um, listed in, in the options paper which is available on our website um, so we had sort of various groups and so um, a group might be at some point discussing density bonuses and there's a bunch of options within that and all of those points were, were written down um, so all in all there was something like 400 comments that were made over the course of the two days that we've gotten a big spreadsheet. Um, and when I went through and coded them for what level of support was given, so, uh, you know, sort of full support or uh, suggestions on how to make it work at the top and then sort of in the middle, you know, reservations or significant barriers and then at the bottom, complete opposition to that idea, only 1% of the comments that were made were complete opposition. There were t- 10% were... Uh, saying, well, there are significant barriers that need to be overcome. But for most of the time, 89% of the time, uh, conversation was centred around this is how you would make it happen. So it was very positive in tone and that was coming from all the sectors. And just to give one concrete example, towards the beginning of the current phase of transforming housing, we had a a cocktail party uh, where we invited some key folks and uh, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, who are one of the funders of the project, are beginning to turn from, for instance, homelessness services, so direct support to people who are homeless, to uh, funding both um, specific affordable housing projects and um, building up capacity amongst the community housing sector. So they aren't just important for the philanthropists that 
they um, represent or work with, they are also a leader in the philanthropic sector. And there are uh, philanthropies that are funding really interesting um, affordable housing projects. There's local governments that are willing to consider, as Alexander said earlier, um, building a, uh, on council-owned property under certain conditions. Uh, and, and you know, all it took was uh, um, uh, getting people together and there was some pretty um, frantic deal-making taking place, which wasn't even what we expected, but we were very happy to see happen. So there's a lot of willingness, and I do see a bit of um, a bit of a change happening, and I consider it very exciting. I think that the role of social investment is just coming into um, its own in Australia. I think it's a little further ahead in Europe and North America, but it's just starting to come into its own North, um, in Australia, and, and that would be a great source of funding, particularly if it got some government support in terms of tax breaks. Um, I think that uh, for a long time, public transport was seen as a us um, problem, that is, it affects all of us, whereas affordable housing was seen as a them problem, it only affects a few of them. But I think that affordable housing is starting to become an us problem, it's a problem for all of us. Uh, and whatever, for whatever reason that happens, whether it's uh, economic productivity, housing key workers, or whether it's just simply the right to shelter, um, it's it's an exciting development. It's starting to be talked about by everyone, and could be equally exciting to it, the way the public transport started being talked about by everyone. So projecting forward, we have reason to be optimistic. I, I like being optimistic. It's much more fun than being pessimistic. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty um, optimistic about the next steps for this project and also for change across Australia. Certainly there's been some interest from New South Wales and there were some folks from the Australian Capital Territory at um, the summit. Um, yeah, I see a bit of a sea change happening. Great. Well, that's a, a nice positive note maybe to, to go out on. Uh, my guests today have been Professor Carolyn Weitzman and Alexander Sheko from the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Thank you to you both. Thank you, Gary. Getting to Yes and Transforming Housing are the projects that we've been talking about, funded by the University of Melbourne's Carlton Connect initiative in collaboration with government representatives, developers, social housing providers and other key parties. You can read more about their outcomes and their research on our website, socialequity.unimel.edu.au. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the discussion that we've had today. Send us an email or connect with us on Twitter. All Being Equal is recorded at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne. Gavin Neighbour is our audio engineer. Subscribe on iTunes to make sure that you never miss an episode. I'm Gary Dixon and we'll be back soon. 